We all woke up in the middle of the night. We walked out into the town. We looked up at the clock tower in the town square. The black clock. It didn't ring, but we all heard it. Black Clock Audio Tales. Hosted by me, D.B. Spitzer. This month, more Anne Radcliffe. The castles... Uh, my, I don't have my glasses on. Anthony and Dundane, uh, our reader this month will clarify the name. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this episode is brought to you by uh, Uncle Owen's Goat Farm, uh, finest chef in the region. Uh, you can pick that up at A1 Grocery. And also, hey, Oblivions, our patio is open during the pandemic. And as we all know, Oblivions has the biggest patio uh, for Oktoberfest, St. Patty's Days. And if you want to rent it for your next get-together in the upcoming months when we're able to have get-togethers, they are, yeah, no, you can, you can rent the uh, beer garden and it, it'll all be great. Anyway, thank you so much. Black Clock Audio Tales, 1130 AM, KZOM, the place to be and be seen. That is such a stupid slogan. Why do we... You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Lauren Randall. The Castles of Othlin and Dunbane by Anne Radcliffe. Chapter 5. One morning early, the Earl discerned a martial band emerging from the verge of the horizon. His heart welcomed his hopes, which were soon confirmed into certainty. It was his faithful people, led on by Alan. It was their design to surround and attack the castle, and though their numbers gave them but little hopes of conquest, they yet believed that in the tumult of the engagement they might procure the deliverance of the Earl. With this view they advanced to the walls— The sentinels had described them at a distance. The alarm was given, the trumpets sounded, and the walls of the castle were filled with men. The baron was present and directed the preparations. The secret purpose of his soul was fixed. The clan surrounded the fosse into which they threw bundles of faggots and gave the signal of attack. Scaling ladders were thrown up to the window of the tower. The earl, invigorated with hope and joy, had by the force of his arm almost wrenched from its fastening one of the iron bars of the grate. His foot was lifted to the stanchion, ready to aid him in escaping through the opening, when he was seized by the guards of the baron and conveyed precipitately from the prison. He was led indignant and desperate to the lofty ramparts of the castle, from whence he beheld Alan and his clan, whose eager eyes were once more blessed with the sight of their chief. They were blessed but for a moment. They beheld their lord in chains, surrounded with guards and with the instruments of death. Animated, however, with a last hope, they renewed the attack with redoubled fury, when the trumpets of the baron sounded a parley and they suspended their arms. The baron appeared on the ramparts. Alan advanced to hear him. The moment of attack, cried the baron, is the moment of death to your chief. If you wish to preserve his life, desist from the assault and depart in peace, and bear this message to the countess, your mistress. The baron Malcolm will accept no other ransom for the life and the liberty of the earl than her beauteous daughter, whom he now sues to become his wife. If she accedes to these terms, the earl is instantly liberated. If she refuses, 
He dies. The emotions of the Earl and of Alan on hearing these words were inexpressible. The Earl spurned with haughty virtue the base concession. Give me death, cried he with loud impatience. The house of Othland shall not be dishonored by alliance with a murderer. Renew the attack, my brave people. Since you cannot save the life, revenge the death of your chief. He dies contented, since his death preserves his family from dishonor. The guards instantly surrounded the earl. Alan, whose heart, torn by contending emotions, was yet true to the impulse of honor. On observing this, instantly threw down his arms, refusing to obey the commands of the earl, a hostage for whose life he demanded. While he hastened to the castle of Othland with the conditions of the baron, the clan, following the example of Alan, rested on their arms, while a few prepared to depart with him on the embassy. In vain were the remonstrances and the commands of the earl. His people loved him too well to obey them, and his heart was filled with anguish when he saw Alan depart from the walls. The situation of Alan was highly pitiable. All the firm virtues of his soul were called upon to support it. He was commissioned on an embassy the alternate conditions of which would bring misery on the woman he adored, or death to the friend whom he loved. When the arrival of Alan was announced to the countess, impatient joy thrilled in her bosom, for she had no doubt that he brought offers of accommodation, and no ransom was presented to her imagination, which she would not willingly give for the restoration of her son. At the sound of Alan's voice, those tumults which had began to subside in the heart of Mary were again revived, and she awoke to the mournful certainty of hopeless endeavor. Yet she could not repress a strong emotion of joy on again beholding him. The soft blush of her cheek showed the colors of her mind, while in endeavoring to shade her feelings, she impelled them into stronger light. The agitations of Alan almost subdued his strength. When he entered the presence of the countess, and his visage on which was impressed deep distress and the paleness of fear, betrayed the inward workings of his soul. Matilda was instantly seized with apprehension for the safety of her son, and in a tremulous voice inquired his fate. Alan told her he was well, proceeding with tender caution to acquaint her with the business of his embassy, and with the scene to which he had lately been witness. The sentence of the baron fell like the stroke of death upon the heart of Mary, who fainted at the words. Alan flew to support her. In endeavoring to revive her daughter, the countess was diverted for a time from the anguish which this intelligence must naturally impart. It was long ere Mary returned to life, and she returned only to a sense of wretchedness. The critical situation of Matilda can scarcely be felt in its full extent. Torn by the conflict of opposite interests, her brain was the seat of tumult and wild dismay. Whichever way she looked, destruction closed the view. The murderer of the husband now sought to murder the happiness of the daughter. On the sentence of the mother hung the final fate of the son. In rejecting these terms, she would give him instant death. In accepting them, her conduct would be repugnant to the feelings of indignant virtue and to the tender, injured memory of her murdered lord. She would destroy forever the peace of her daughter and the honor of her house. To effect his deliverance by force of arms was utterly impractical, since the baron had declared that the moment of attack should be the moment of death to the earl. Honor, humanity, 
parental tenderness bade her save her son. Yet by a strange contrariety of interest, the same virtues pleaded with a voice equally powerful, for the reverse of the sentence. Hitherto hope had still illumined her mind with a distant ray. She now found herself suddenly involved in the darkness of despair, whose glooms were interrupted only by the gleams of horror which arose from the altar on which was to be sacrificed one of her beloved children. Her mind shrunk from the idea of uniting her daughter to the murderer of her father. The ferocious character of Malcolm was alone sufficient to blight forever the happiness of the woman whose fate should be connected with his. To give to the murderer the child of the murdered was a thought too horrid to rest upon. The countess rejected with force the baron's offer of exchange when the bleeding figure of her beloved son, pale and convulsed in death, started on her imagination, and stretched her brain almost to frenzy. Meanwhile, Mary suffered a conflict equally dreadful. Nature had bestowed on her a heart susceptible of all the fine emotions of delicate passion, a heart which vibrated in unison with the sweetest feelings of humanity, a mind quick in perceiving the nicest lines of moral rectitude, and strenuous in endeavoring to act up to its perceptions. These gifts were unnecessary to make her sensible of the wretchedness of her present situation, of which a common mind would have felt the misery. They served, however, to sharpen the points of affliction, to increase their force, and to disclose in stronger light the various horrors of her situation. Fraternal love and pity called loudly upon her to resign herself into the power of the man whom, from the earliest dawn of perception, she had contemplated with trembling aversion and horror. The memory of her murdered parent, every feeling dear to virtue, the tremulous but forceful voice of love awakened her heart, and each opposed with wild impetuosity every other sentiment. Her soul shrunk back with terror from the idea of union with the baron. Could she bear to receive in marriage that hand which was stained with the blood of her father? The polluted touch would freeze her heart in horror. Could she bear to pass her life with a man who had forever blasted the smiling days of him who gave her being? With a man who would stand before her eyes a perpetual monument of misery to herself and of dishonor to her family? whose chilling aspect would repel every amiable and generous affection, and strike them back upon her heart only to wound it. To cherish the love of the noble virtues would be to cherish the remembrance of her dead father and of her living lover. How wretched must be her situation when to obliterate from her memory the image of virtue could alone afford her a chance of obtaining a horrid tranquility, virtue which is so dear to the human heart that when her form forsakes us, we pursue her shadow. Wherever in search of comfort she directed her aching sight, misery's haggard countenance obtruded on her view. Here she beheld herself entombed in the arms of the murderer, there the spectacle of her beloved brother, encircled with chains and awaiting the stroke of death, arose to her imagination. The scene was too affecting. Fancy gave her the horrors of reality. The reflection that through her he suffered, that she yet might save him from destruction, broke with irresistible force upon her mind, and instantly bore away every opposing feeling. She resolved that since she must be wretched, she would be nobly wretched. Since misery demanded one sacrifice, she would devote herself the victim." 
With these thoughts, she entered the apartment of the countess, whose concurrence was necessary to ratify her resolves, and having declared them, awaited in trembling expectation her decision. Matilda had suffered a distraction of mind, which the nature of no former trial had occasioned her. On the unfortunate death of a husband tenderly loved, she had suffered all the sorrow which tenderness and all the shock which the manner of his death could occasion. The event, however, shocking as it was, did not hang upon circumstances over which she had an influence. It was decided by an higher power. It was decided and never could be recalled. She had there no dreadful choice of horrors, no evil ratified by her own voice to taint with deadly recollections her declining days. This choice, though forced upon her by the power of a tyrant, she would still consider as in part her own, and the thought that she was compelled to doom to destruction one of her children harrowed up her soul almost to frenzy. Her mind, at length exhausted with excessive feeling, was now fallen into a state of cold and silent despair. She became insensible to the objects around her, almost to the sense of her own sufferings, and the voice and the proposal of her daughter scarcely awakened her powers of perception. "'He shall live!' said Mary in a voice broken and tender. "'He shall live! I am ready to become the sacrifice!' Tears prevented her proceeding. At the word live, the countess raised her eyes and threw round her a look of wildness, which, settling on the features of Mary, softened into an expression of ineffable tenderness. She waved her head and turned to the window. A few tears bedewed her cheek. They fell like the drops of heaven upon the withered plant, reviving and expanding its dying foliage. They were the first her eyes had known since the fatal news had reached her. Recovering herself a little, she sent for Alan, who was still in the castle. She wished to consult with him whether there was not yet a possibility of effecting the escape of the earl. In afflictions of whatever degree, where death has not already fixed the events in certainty, the mind shoots almost beyond the sphere of possibility in search of hope, and seldom relinquishes the fond illusion till the stroke of reality dissolves the enchantment. Thus it was with Matilda. After the grief produced by the first stroke of this disaster was somewhat abated, she was inclined to think that her situation might not prove so desperate as she imagined, and her heart was warmed by a remote hope that there might yet be devised some method of procuring the escape of the earl. Alan came. He came in the trembling expectation of receiving the decision of the countess, and in the intention of offering to engage in any enterprise, however hazardous, for the enlargement of the earl. He repelled with instant force every idea of Mary's becoming the wife of Malcolm. The thought was too full of agony to be endured, and he threw the sensation from his heart as a poison which would destroy the pulse of life. To preserve Mary from a misery so exquisite, and to save the life of the earl, he was willing to encounter any hazard, to meet death itself as an evil which appeared less dreadful than either of the former. He came prepared with this resolution, and it served to support that fortitude which affliction had disturbed, though it could not subdue. When he came again to the countess, his distress was heightened by the scene before him. He beheld her leaning on a sofa, pale and silent. Her unconscious eyes were fixed on an opposite window. Her countenance was touched with the wildness expressive of the disorder of her mind, 
and she remained for some time insensible of his approach. Such is the fluctuation of a mind overcome by distress, that if for a moment a ray of hope cheers its darkness, it vanishes at the touch of recollection. Mary was standing near the countess, whose hand she held to her bosom. Her present sorrow had heightened the natural pensiveness of her countenance, and shaded her features with an interesting languor, more enchanting than the vivacity of blooming health. Her eyes sought to avoid Alan, as an object dangerous to the resolution she had formed. Matilda remained absorbed in thought. Mary wished to repeat the purpose of her soul, but her voice trembled, and the half-formed sentence died away on her lips. Alan inquired the commands of the countess. "'I am ready,' said Mary, at length in a low and tremulous voice, "'to give myself the victim to the baron's revenge. I will save my brother.' At these words the heart of Alan grew cold. Mary, overcome by the effort which they had occasioned her, scarcely finished the sentence. Her nerves shook, a mist fell over her eyes, and she sunk on the sofa by which she had stood. Alan hung over the couch in silent agony, watching her return to life. By the assistance of those about her, she soon revived. Alan, in the joy which he felt at her recovery, forgot for a moment his situation, and pressed with ardor her hand to his bosom. Mary, whose senses were yet scarcely recollected, yielded unconsciously to the softness of her heart, and betrayed its situation by a smile so tender as to thrill the breast of Alan with the sweet certainty of being loved. Hitherto his passion had been chilled by the despair which the vast superiority of her birth occasioned, and by the modesty which forbade him to imagine that he had merit sufficient to arrest the eye of the accomplished Mary. Perhaps, too, the diffidence natural to genuine love might contribute to deceive him. It was not till this moment that he experienced that certainty which awakened in his heart a sense of delight hitherto unknown to him. For a moment he forgot the distresses of the castle. In his own situation, every idea faded from his mind, but the one he had so lately acquired, and in that moment he seemed to taste perfect felicity. Recollection, however, with all its train of black dependencies, soon returned, and plunged him in a misery as poignant as the joy from which he was now precipitated. The countess was now sufficiently composed to enter on the subject nearest her heart. Alan caught, with eagerness, her mention of attempting the deliverance of the earl, for the possibility of accomplishing which he declared himself willing to encounter any danger. He seconded so warmly the design and spoke with such flattering probability of success that the spirits of Matilda began once more to revive. Yet she trembled to encourage hopes which hung on such perilous uncertainty. It was agreed that Alan should consult with the most able and trusty of the clan, whom age or infirmity had detained from battle, on the means most likely to ensure success, and then proceed immediately on the expedition, having first delivered to the baron a message from the countess, requiring time for deliberation upon a choice so important, and importing that an answer should be returned at the expiration of a fortnight. Alan accordingly assembled those whom he judged most worthy of the council. Various schemes were proposed, none of which appeared likely to succeed, 
when it was recollected that the earl might possibly have been removed from the tower to some new place of confinement, which it would be necessary first to discover, that the plan might be adapted to the situation. It was therefore concluded to suspend further consultation till Allen had obtained the requisite information, and that in the meantime he should deliver to Malcolm the message of the countess. For these purposes, Allen immediately set out for the castle. End of chapter 5 Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to this episode of Black Clock Audio Tales. I've been your host, D.B. Spitzer. Check out next week's episode, you know, two a week, hey! Uh, and for those who are listening, uh, if you don't listen to some episodes, you can listen to others. Quick update, I'm no longer the mayor. Town elected a new mayor. Uh, I am Pickman. A uh, reclusive chap hangs out in the mayor's residence. Doesn't really have me do a lot of stuff. Is just trying to uh, get people to uh, care about Oleander, greenify it, keep it clean, um, get the cemetery back up to snuff, get people wanting to live and die in Oleander. So, hey, you know, business is huge. All right. We'll see you next time. And remember, rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends about what's going on, and we'll tell you what's going on with our friends. All right. Thank you again, and we'll talk to you later. All right.